Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you all this morning, so cheerful and happy. Turn your Bibles, if you would, please, to the first book of Samuel, chapter 6 today. I'm not sure if you've all been keeping up with um, this book as we've been going through it, but it's been... uh, it's been quite the journey. I've learned a lot, and it's really exposed a lot in me that I really, you know, come to terms with and have grown just through this study of 1 Samuel. It's been extremely exciting. It's actually two of my favorite books is First and Second Samuel. I've always really just loved that whole, the whole story. It's just, um, there's just so much in it, and it's so exciting, and it's just such an adventure just to read it. It's just amazing. Anyway, um... Turn to chapter 6. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter. Um, Bear with me. I've been sick for the last couple weeks, so if it comes out grumbly, I do apologize. Chapter 6, 1 Samuel, which reads, And the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners, saying, What shall we do to the ark of the Lord? Tell us wherewith we shall send it to his place. And they said, If ye send it away, the ark of God of Israel, send it not empty, but in any wise return him a trespass offering. Then ye shall be healed, and it shall be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Then said they, What shall be the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they said, Five golden emeralds and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For one plague was on you all. And on all your lords. Wherefore, ye shall make images of your emeralds, or they could be referred to as hemorrhoids or boils, uh, whatever you prefer. It's just a painful experience. An image of your mice that mar the land. And ye shall give glory unto God, the God of Israel. Peradventure, he will lighten his hand off you, and from off your gods, and from off your land. Wherefore, then do ye harden your hearts as the Egyptians. And Pharaoh hardened their hearts when he had wrought wonderfully among them. Did they not did they not let the people go and they departed? Now therefore make a new cart and take two cows on which there hath come no yoke and tie the cows to the ark and bring their calves home from them. And take the ark of the Lord and lay it upon the cart and put the jewels of the gold which ye returned him for a trespass offering in a coffer by the side thereof and send it away that it may go. And see if it go up by the way of the coast of Beth Shemesh. Then hath done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not the hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. And the men did so, and took two cows, and tied them to the cart, and shut up the calves at home. And they laid the ark of the Lord upon the cart, and the coffer with the mice of the gold, and the image of their emeralds. And the kine, or cows, took the straight way to the way of Beth Shemesh, and went along the highway, lowing as they went, and turned not aside to the right hand, nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them under the border of Beth Shemesh. And they of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes, and saw the ark, and rejoiced to see it. And the cart came into the field of Joshua, the Beth Shemite, and stood there, where there was a great stone, and they clave the wood of the cart and offer the kine or cows a burnt offering unto the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord 
and the coffer that was with it, wherein the jewels of gold were, and put them on the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the same day unto the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. And these are the golden emeralds which the Philistines returned for a trespass offering unto the Lord. For Ashdod, one of Gaza, one. For Ascalon, one. For Gath, one. And for Ekron, one. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of fenced cities and of country villages, even unto the great stone of Abel, wherein they set down the ark of the Lord, which stone remaineth unto this day in the field of Joshua the Bethshemite. And he smote the men of Bethshemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. Even he smote of the people fifty thousand and threescore and ten men. And the people lamented, because the Lord had smitten many of the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall he go up for us? And they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought again the ark of the Lord. Come ye down and fetch it up to you. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that we, all of us, possess uh, a copy of your word. Lord, how grateful we are. Lord, be glorified this morning. Um, enable me by your power. Grant me the strength to be able to communicate what it is that you would have me communicate to your people. Uh, be glorified in the preaching of your word. Be glorified and open up the hearts of your people to receive your word. Uh, give us understanding, Lord. Help us to understand uh, what it is that's being said today. Uh, Lord, that we would not be deceived, Lord, but we would be strengthened in Christ. So, Lord, we just offer this day up into your hands, offer this time up into your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. The title of our message today, if we were going to give the title, um, would be, Who is Able to Stand Before God? Who is able to stand before God? In a nutshell, we know from this story that the ark of the Lord had been captured Eli and his sons destroyed, and Eli's daughter-in-law died while giving birth to her son. Her last words being, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 1 from our text this morning, it says, Now the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. These vile enemies of God carry with them the ark of the Lord, which had never before had been touched by unconsecrated hands or for ages exposed to the gaze of any but the priest. First of all, the ark was taken to Ashdod, three miles from the seacoast, the chief seat of the worship of Dagon, the national god of the Philistines. And then afterwards, it was sent to Gath, 10 miles away, the native place of Goliath and then sent to Ekron. First it was, as we all have known and have read the story so far and are keeping up, if you've not been keeping up or if you've missed some Sundays, please go to Sermon Audio. You can catch up on the sermon series. But if you've been following along, you understand that first and foremost, the judgment came upon Israel, came upon the priest, came upon those in Shiloh, uh, came upon those who were appointed uh, as priest and high priest, obviously, over the Ark of the Covenant to take to do the ordinance, but instead they blaspheme God, and God um, was offended 
and removed the Ark of the Covenant out of Israel, took his, which symbolized his presence from the land. Then the judgment came upon the Philistines for the captured possession of the Ark. And here we see the judgment of God executed in many ways. And this is really going to be our key focus today, is really seeing that the judgment of God, you know, God's judgments are executed in many ways. And we must understand and come to terms that the Lord is the Lord over all creation. He owns all creation. Um, he has a right to command even the heathen what to do. Why? Because he is God. Yes, he's king over the church, those who submit to his kingship and authority, but he's king over the whole universe. He is King Jesus. Man does not make him king. He is king. And that he rules and he reigns. And this is our Lord. And he is in control of the heathen and the saved. And you know what? He brings judgments upon his people and upon the heathen. And as we go along in the story, you're going to see kind of how God moves amongst the people of the earth. Everything always falls back to the original intent and design and purpose of God. We have to understand that God just doesn't judge for the sake of judging. He judges because the ultimate purpose of why God created man was to worship God, the true God of Scripture. The true intent of man is to worship God. Man is commanded by God to worship him. And God has every right to command his creation to worship him. Whether they do it or not uh, is irrelevant. They're still commanded in Scripture. God commands all men everywhere, right, to repent because he set apart a day of judgment where he's going to judge all men by his son, Jesus Christ. And this is what we're, what we're reading here is that the original intent that God had for Israel is that Israel would be a light to the nations. It's always been God's original purpose, his original intent, and original design is for them to be a light to the surrounding nations. In Romans eleven twenty nine, it says, for the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. And this is the call of God upon Israel. Even read in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6, which says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. Isaiah 49 says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Israel was to bear witness of the living and true God and to preserve his religion separate and distinct from the idolatry and superstition of the heathen. But because they chose to behave like pagans, the ark gets captured by pagans. And God commands us to worship in spirit and in truth. And God does not take our worship lightly when we buy into the superstitions of men and behave like pagans. God does not tolerate that, nor does he have to, whether that be in the Old Testament or the New Testament. It was literally as if God had walked away from his people. They had so abused his holy name with their vile practices and cold, dead apathy that the glory of God departed Israel. We say to ourselves, well, now that was the Old Testament Israel, but we are the New Testament church. This really doesn't apply to us. But the Bible says quite differently. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. 
And then in verse 12, he says, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In verse 47, he says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is Acts 13, 47. Then we see in Acts 26, 23, we see the same calling that issued to Israel, the same calling to his church that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. The whole calling of God's people, his original intent right from the very beginning, was to be a light to the surrounding nations. So those would see the light. Those, they would see those who represented God in spirit and in truth by the obedience. Obviously, uh, in the Old Testament, we know ultimately it still was a religion of faith. But the reality is, is that they were given laws. They were given prescriptive laws to obey that would separate them out from the heathen so they would be blessed by God. And upon that blessing, the other nations would see that these people were blessed, that they walked differently, they lived differently, they loved differently. They, 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 their whole lives and their character was a representative of the true God of Israel. But in reality, as we all know, we read the story of one calamity after another, how they continually rebelled against these commands. They rebelled against the commands of God to be a light to the nations. And instead, they became themselves enslaved to the nations that they were supposed to be a light to. The original calling also comes to God's people. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to be a light to the world. So in essence, we as the people of God are still commanded by the God of Scripture to be a light to the nations, to represent him in spirit and in truth. And many of our pulpits today in this country are captured by pagans. Today, we too see many pagan-like practices in the American church. Pagans behind the pulpits, bewitched and self-deceived, thinking that it's normal. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because over a long period of time, if something isn't confronted, eventually it's accepted as normal. If it's accommodated over a long period of time, these practices and these behaviors um, people just generally will accept it and it will become the norm and it will become the new name of Christianity. In our, in our country, obviously, as you know, um, there's a big counterfeit version of Christianity that's acceptable to most in this country. But it's, it's not even fit to be called Christianity according to biblical terms. And it's very dangerous because, as you know, what? Many religions, they use the same language. They use the same words. But instead, they appeal to the selfish nature of human beings to be able to fill these churches uh, with what they want, and they continue to preach lies and they deceive many. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 19 says, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows the, those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of Christ depart iniquity. Depart from iniquity. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. This is the reality 
of the true believers who are in Christ. Not that we don't fall into iniquity, not that we don't sin, not that we don't rebel at times, not that we don't have seasons where we're, we're prone to wander. This is not what it's saying here, but the reality is, is that we are the people of God and we should shine for Christ. We should be those who will go into darkness and shine for Christ. We are those who confront evil, not endorse evil. We're not to get around and back up things that God hates. We're to live in such a way where our light shines before men. In 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 4, it says that the Lord had smashed their silly idol and that their God was cast to the ground and it was broken into pieces. And it says that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them from Ashdod and the coast, the whole territory. And he smote them with boils or emeralds or hemorrhoids, whatever you want to call them, to the point where their country was really suffering under the judgment of God. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 2, it says, And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. Interestingly enough, if you look at this, you always wonder, like, who in the world are these people? These diviners and these people that are that they're, they're counseling with and these priests or whatever. Like, who are these people? Well, apparently, with some study, you come to find out that these people were very familiar with, with Israel. Very familiar with the God of Israel. Very familiar with the customs and the practices of Israel. Very they were, they were well-rounded in many different things. And obviously, as you know, most religions are. Most religions are usually some perversion of the truth, right? If you look at like Mormonism or Islam or something, you always notice that there's little things in there, Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. There's little things in there that bear the resemblance of Christianity, but they're always kind of crowded in by a bunch of lies, right? It's, it's, it's never, something's always, something's just not right, shady. And uh, very similar um, to this religion of the Philistines, which obviously was gross and damnable, uh, and, and God hated it. But the reality is that they came together. They came together and they counseled, what in the world should we do with this thing? Because they had come under such a, such a revolting judgment uh, of God and, and, and where their, their whole, their whole uh, city-state or whatever was decimated um, by boils and rats. You know, many, many historians try to compare this with the bubonic plague or the black plague where uh, the rats came into the city and now they're basically saying that it wasn't necessarily the rats that brought the disease, but it was the lice on the rats, you know, or whatever. But what we see here very similarly is that God had used rodents and boils uh, to bring people to Repentance, or to push people towards getting something completed. What? For his own glory. It said that uh, the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them at Ashdod. I mean, it's the very conscience of humanity. I mean, the Bible says that every man has a conscience. Everybody knows right from wrong. God has given every man a conscience. They know right from wrong. And they also know that God exists. And if you study the uh, religions of the world, or you even study some of the deepest parts 
of different tribes and different cults and different practices around the world, even throughout ancient history, even through the Druids in, in Ireland and throughout Scotland and all these things, you will see that upon the conscience of man was always the demand for sacrifice and human sacrifice. It was written upon the very fabric of this reality because we're made in the very image of God. Upon them was there was no expiation for their guilt. The guilt remained. So in that guilt, there was this obsessive desire for sacrifice and bloodshed. And if you notice, a lot of these types of, um, of, of false religions and cults throughout the ages, they always had some sort of like human sacrifice, bloodletting. And even today, many even say like abortion is a religion in and of itself because of the bloodshed and just some of the behavior that goes on and some of the, 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 the whole ideologies around it all. Uh, it's very sick and very demented. But the reality is you will find that tribes around the world, you know, that have never read the Bible, who've never heard of Christ, will practice things that show that they know that God exists. And that this idea of sacrifice isn't foreign. Even though it's completely idolatrous and completely wrong, uh, man is made in such a fashion where he feels he needs to resolve himself in such a way and in some way, and it always leads to some kind of perversion of the truth. All major religions, every single one you could ever come up with, all have been invented from, from the idea of what is sin and what do we do with sin. Notice, if you study all the religions, you'll always see that it always, at the end of the day, deals with what are we going to do with the issue of sin? And all of these religions are all built around this reality of works righteousness opposed to our Christian faith. The effect of, the, of their sufferings on the people of Ashdod was to lead them to resolve. The ark of God of Israel shall not abide with us, they said. But its removal was deemed as a matter of such importance that they called the council to determine what should be done. They sought to effect their purpose by sending it to Gath. It was only when both Gath and Ekron were still more severely afflicted than Ashdod, many died, and the cry of distress, it says, went up to heaven. And that is when the second council consented to let this thing go. We need to get this thing out of here. 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 3, as we continue through our text, they said, If you send away the ark of God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering, indicating that they understood some idea of atonement, some idea of an offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And then they said, What is the trespass offering? We shall return it to him. Exodus 23.15 is, is, is where they're pulling this from. God says, none shall appear before me empty. Not that God needs anything from man. Trust me, God doesn't need anything from us. Requires nothing from us personally to satisfy him. But he needs, he requires in some sense is our hearts. You know, it's really always all worship, everything, even the situation with Eli and his sons always deals and manifests ultimately at the end of the day it's a heart issue it's a heart towards god it's not about the ritual it's always been about the heart and god always seeks true worship from his people 
So they answered five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the Lord of the Philistines. And then in verse 5, it says, Therefore you shall make images of your tumors and images of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods, and from your lands. Interestingly, here they're saying giving glory to the God of Israel. That just doesn't happen by accident. There is a, a, a definitely a, a respect for the God of Israel. And the reason why there's this respect is because of what happened in the days of Moses. When, when God delivered Israel, that rumor continued to ripple out through the nations and continued uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament history and even throughout the New Testament. This, this, this deliverance that God had delivered his people in these great plagues terrified the nations around. So when they saw these plagues happening, when they saw the mice or the rats and the boils and all these things, it, the lights went on. Okay, we're not going to mess with the God of Israel. We need, not only is this painful and miserable, but the reality is, is that we have messed with the wrong God. The one and only true God, and we have messed with the wrong people. And then it goes on in verse 6, Why then do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians did to Pharaoh? And they hardened their hearts. Well, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts, when he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? And this is basically the reality that they know that this God must be dealt with appropriately in order for them to have deliverance from their sin. But as the Bible says in Romans, this is a, this is a very clear indication. It points us to Romans 1 where they suppress the truth. And anytime, anytime there's a suppression of truth, it always leads to bizarre behavior. Always remember that. Anytime there's a suppression of truth, um, it always leads to bizarre behaviors. The Bible goes on. If you read the book of Romans chapter 1, you will read some of that bizarre behavior. And that usually comes from the suppression of the truth. And that's where religions come from when, when, when man has rebelled against God and they don't want to deal with their rebellion biblically as coming to Christ, repenting of their sin, putting their faith in Christ, being forgiven, being made right with God. Instead, they suppress the truth and unrighteousness and they're reduced to absurdity. And anytime you hear someone say, I'm an atheist, that's absurdity. You see what that is? Because there's no such thing as atheism. Because the scripture is very clear, tells us in Romans 1.19, says this, because that which may be known of God is manifest where? In them. For God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from creation of the world are what? Clearly seen. They're not cloudy. You know, they're not something that we just got to try to figure out. Could be this, could be that. It's clearly seen to them. Being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power in Godhead. So they are without excuse. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And the thing is, with the Philistines, believe it or not, they responded correctly. They responded correctly. Let me just say one thing real quick before we move through the rest of this, is that 
Absurdity comes in many forms, not just with the lost, but also with God's people. Anytime God's people suppress the truth of what needs to be done, they'll always be reduced to some kind of bizarre behavior. Trust me, that can even happen to believers. I'm not saying believers can fall away. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is, anytime someone begins to compromise and they're afraid to preach the truth or they don't do what God has commanded them to do, they suppress that reality, it's going to come out somewhere. And usually it comes out somewhere bizarre. Bizarre behavior comes, even with the people of God, when we suppress the truth of God, even the Great Commission. God says, go, and we say no. And what happens? All kinds of things pop up in the church. Because what are they? We compensate by substitutes. We do everything but what God says to do. And we want to somehow, what? We want to somehow calm our conscience by being able to form up some, stir up some kind of activities and then just slap the name tag missions and evangelism on them to make ourselves feel good about ourselves because we know we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And a lot of times it pops up in other areas of your life. I remember the famous, uh, the famous preacher, you ever heard of Christmas Evans? Anyone heard of Christmas Evans? They called him the Welch Spurgeon. Apparently he, uh, he basically, in his own words, these aren't my words, he was saying that he had literally walked away from what God had called him to do. God called him to be, be, uh, you know, be, be, um, be in action, not only behind the pulpit, but be outdoors as well. He was very, very prolific, very robust, and very a little bit eccentric preacher, but God used him powerfully. They called him the Welch Spurgeon. And uh, apparently he says that he decided that he, wasn't, he, he was going to walk away from what God had called him to do. And he said one night he heard a bunch of voices and he walks out. And they called them Rufians at the time, right? They're more like gang members back then. And one of them took a brick and threw it at him and knocked his eye out and left him unconscious. And he said when he was unconscious, he apparently he said he had this vision of all of his friends and all these people just perishing in hell. And Christ said, now it's too late. What are you going to do? Um, and he woke up from that. And with one eye, missing one eye, jump back into the business which God had called him into. Um, it's just, you know, it's a dangerous place to play around with God. You know, I'm totally reformed. Don't get me wrong. God is perfectly sovereign, but I'm not a hyper-Calvinist. You know, I think there is definitely personal responsibility, and we need to be doing what God's called us to do. And when God has called you to do something, and we suppress that, we say, no, no. I mean, look at Jonah, right? We just don't want to do it. I'm telling you right now, it's not a very safe place to be. It's not a good place to be. And it can hurt you, and it can hurt others. So we always want to be where God wants to be, and the safest place to be is dead center in God's will. They responded correctly. They said, now therefore make a new cart. Take two milk cows which have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart. You see a reverence here because you know what? They're not saying, hey, grab that old cart out behind the shed. They're saying, hey, build a new cart. You know what I mean? And, and take some of the, take two cows. And um, we've never been yoked before. Never, these, are, these are like super healthy cows. And hitch the cows to the cart and their calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord and set it on the cart and put the articles of gold, which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. And then he says, then send it away. And it's really interesting, the combination of these words, because it's interesting because if you look at the believer's life, it's very um, 
it fits very well in biblical repentance. He says, the first thing he says, then send it away. Number two, he says, let it go. And number three, he says, and watch. So he says, hey, send it away, let it go, and watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory in Beth Shemesh, then he has done us his great, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by chance. And that doesn't mean like chance by luck. It really means ultimately the original language means fails or it doesn't, it just falls through. So basically send it away. I mean, this is really interesting because it's really scriptural and biblical for us as believers to grasp this reality of sending it away. I mean, obviously they're sending their, um, you know, their, their golden mice and, and, and their hemorrhoids pack, you know, and, and really looking for deliverance from their sin. But in reality, as a believer, we need to understand something. Um, dealing with our own personal sin towards God, you know, at the point of biblical repentance, when you turn away from your sin, you need to literally send it away. I mean, bon voyage, gone, not playing with it, not partially repenting, but fully repenting is really sending it away. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 7, it says, cast all, cast, it gives this idea of casting out, throwing out, cast all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Send it away. You know, and, and I, without sounding gushy up here, I, I really just want to press hard this morning on those of you who may be struggling with a besetting sin or habitual sin or something that you're dealing with. It could be an unruly temper. It could be, it could be, it could be a multiple, multitude of things. Uh, I would say to you to this day, you know, the Lord's given you another day uh, to live and to breathe. And he's granted us the power by his spirit to repent, to hear his word preached. And if there's anything that is burdening you, if it's bitterness or unforgiveness or something there that is creating um, an interference uh, with knowing Christ more or interference with your loved ones because there's an unwillingness to repent. Maybe it's drunkenness. Maybe it's some other thing that you have. Maybe you have other issues that you're just unwilling to part with because you love them, okay? But you've chosen to hide them and make everybody else deal with you, okay? It would be a good time today. You know, I'm not asking for a show of hands or anything like that. I'm just saying to you today, it would be a good day to send it away. Send it away. Ask the Lord to reveal that to you this morning. Say, God, what sins am I dealing with? And I had things. I need God to help me by your power. Send these things away. It could be, it could be a doubtful spirit. It could be an unbelieving spirit. You could, you could struggle with your salvation, believing that God could save you. Um, you know, it's always good to examine the heart. Don't get me wrong. It's not what I'm not saying. But I'm saying there is a sin in your life that's habitual. And it continually shows up. Today would be a good day for you to consider on sending it away. Number two, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. You don't have to um, reward evil with evil. If someone's harmed you, if someone said something against you, someone's done something to you, maybe you were bullied 20 years ago, and for whatever reason you can't get over that, well, today's the day you need to get over it. Not in the sense of belittling you or minimizing your pain. But my point is, it's a time to let it go so you can heal and you can be restored in right relationship 
with your Lord. The Bible says in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching or stretching or straining forward to those things which are ahead. It's painful. This, this is all, these, these adjectives here are really describing a painful stretch. Okay, it's hard to let go. It's hard to let go of some things because sometimes we get addicted to feeling rotten and feeling mad and feeling bitter and mean because it feels good. It releases endorphins when we're angry. And sometimes it's a safe place for us because it's built our identity. For so long, you've built an identity after being, about being bitter towards someone. You're afraid to let that identity go. If you have let the bitterness go, you have to let that identity go and take upon yourself the identity of Christ. And to watch. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 41, keep watching. Keep watching. As they watched that cart go, they didn't take their eyes off it. He says, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Keep watching. Keep, it's a continual watching over our hearts. The Bible says, above all else, you know, above all else, watch our hearts because out of it flows the issues of life. Moving forward, and these verses do kind of, are like a regurgitation. They kind of reaffirm each other. I'm going to jump to chapter 13. It says, now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Could been, I mean, I could imagine what that feeling must have been like. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua, Beth Shemesh, and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood, which is just incredibly awesome. You know, it's, it's like an altar on wheels. You know, they send them the wood, they send them the cows, and they send everything that they need to make an altar unto the Lord. And that's exactly what they did. They took it down. They took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it. They offered a burnt offering to the Lord. It says, then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had finally seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. Their job was done. <clears throat> and then it says, I'm going to jump to 19. Then he struck the men. This is where it's very, um, a good word for this it, it is very startling. Here, this verse is very startling. He says, then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. They looked in the box. You know, God in the box. You know, they, they went a peek in the box and he struck 50,070 men of the people. And the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with such a great slaughter. Why in the world would they pull that stunt? Listen, this is how they got into this place in the first place. For the disrespect of God's covenant, disrespect of the ark of the Lord, this is how this whole situation happened in the first place. Maybe not exactly what happened as far as what happened, but it's disrespect towards God. You know, they got it, they got it back and they're already peeking in the box. You know, and also the, it was the Levites were there as well. They would have known, listen, you don't peek in the box. The box was up on your shoulders on the poles, and we do it the way God has told us and commanded us to do in Scripture, and that's how we're to carry it out of here. But no, it's this whole flippancy towards God. It's all flippancy, as I would say today in the church, towards the gospel, the true biblical word of God. It's all flippancy. It doesn't really matter. Who really cares? Everybody just be cool. It's just a fun thing to do. You know, it was this flippancy that got him killed. That God's a holy and righteous God. He's not going to tolerate this behavior. 
You know, and, and, and I've already been removed from you once. I've been brought back. I'm offering you mercy. And what do you do? You disrespect me again. And God just clears them out. People say, wow, that's an awful lot of people killed for peeking in the box. Don't you know who God is? That's the whole point. They have a wrong view of God. They have a perverted view of who God is. That's the whole problem here. They don't respect him as the holy God of Israel. They don't reverence him. They just look at it as a light thing. We got our God back in a box, and now we can go on business as usual, and that wasn't the case. And that's the attitude of what God hates, even in the church. It's this irreverent attitude that so many of us carry about the things of God, about his word, about his church, all these things. We just have such little regard for the things of God. And we have huge regard of what the world thinks about us and how we're judged by the world and how we compare to the world and how we look and this and that. And, and we really give no regard to God. We should respect the Lord. We should have reverence for the Lord. And this is the disrespect that God does not tolerate. How then, they said, how is it who is able to stand before the Lord? This holy God, who can stand before him? You know the answer? No one can. No one can. No one can stand before God except Christ. And Psalms 130 verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark our iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? See, this is, the, <clears throat> this is the pompous behavior that God hates, is that this reality that we think somehow we're, we are able to stand uh, and, 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 and think that the Lord isn't going to do anything to us because of what we call ourselves, which isn't true. No one can stand before the Lord. And it goes on to say, And to whom shall it go up for us? So they sent messenger to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. Now they're saying, get rid of this thing. Okay? It's like one got, one got the rats and boils, and the other one just got completely decimated. What in the world are we to do with this? Terrifying. And is that terrifying aspect? I, God is a God of love. Don't get me wrong. God is a God of love. He's also a God of wrath. And he demands our respect and deserves our respect. In Numbers 2.16, when God's people committed nasty sins or behaving like wicked heathen, the Bible says that the Lord sent venomous snakes among the people. <clears throat> and many of the Israelites were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord so he will take the snakes away from us. So Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and a mount and mounted on a pole. And when anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze snake and, a, and, and mounted it on a pole. And if anyone who had been bitten looked at the bronze snake, he would live. Very similar to this idea, I believe, that the Philistines took from this reality um, as far as a vicarious atonement. But then in John 3, 14, we see that the only way for anybody, Philistine, Christian, Jew, Roman Catholic, whatever, anyone who's going to be made right with God must come the way of Christ. I like what Spurgeon said. It doesn't, I don't, doesn't matter to me what you call yourself a Methodist whether you call yourself a Baptist, whether you call yourself a Presbyterian, what matters is, is if you are born again. 
And that's the truth. That's what we're seeing here. John 3, 14, Jesus said, And as Moses lifted up the serpent, serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Thank God. Thank God for that. We don't got to build, you know, little golden mice and hemorrhoids and send them back to God and do all this crazy stuff. We don't have to build a serpent, put him on a pole, you know. But we look to the one who's been lifted up. And Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. I will draw all men unto me. And that's exactly, exactly what is happening here. God is the God over the whole universe. Jesus Christ is the king and judge over the entire world. Not just the church. The Bible says in Philippians 2.10 that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You understand this? Every knee will bow someday, whether they're saved or unsaved. I don't care who they are or what name they go by, what their title is, how fat a bank account they have, how cute they are, how successful they are. They will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Every knee will bow to our Christ, bow to our King. Must remember that he is the God over all. Not just over one entity of people. He's our king. He's our Lord. He's our savior. He's our God. He's our redeemer. The world can't say that, but it doesn't change reality that he is still king and Lord and sovereign ruler. And they will have to give an account for their lives. And they will bow on that day. Trust me. No one will be able to stand in his presence. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that you are our God. And Lord, I ask God that you would send your spirit into our hearts this morning. And Lord, you would reveal to us the sin in our own lives, Lord, that we would, we would biblically repent on your terms. That we would compensate, Lord. Do penance and jumping jacks or whatever else. Fondle our prayer beads. Rub Buddha's belly. But Lord, we just come to you in repentance and faith and trust in Christ. Those of us who don't know Christ, who have not come to him, Lord, I pray, Father, that you'd give them a heart this morning that would come to you and rejoice in your goodness. Those of us who are Christians, Lord, I pray, Father, today that we'd be awakened to this reality and if there's things in our life, if we are entangled by um, just continual habitual sin that we're unwilling to get rid of, Lord, that we would get rid of them this morning. We'd send them away. We would let them go and that we would be watchful, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen.